everybody actually already has a liturgy. Mm. We all already have habits mm -hmm. or orders of service or things that we generally do when we approach God. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think the scriptures show a lot of things that the people of God did as they approached God. Mm. And so you can, you can get, um, you can search through the scriptures, you can search through church history um, for different ways that people approached the Lord in formal worship. Mm. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And guys, go check us out on social media. You know where we're at. We're on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all the good stuff. And go share with your friends, your family, and like get the word out. Help us reach people with the gospel. Review it. Yeah. yeah. Leave reviews. That helps a lot, too. So. Yep. And with that, y'all, we have an awesome guest in the studio today with us. Mm -hmm. Very special guest, Father Joe McCauley. And we're really excited to talk with him. He's going to talk with us about... Anglicanism, he is an Anglican himself, and he's also going to talk with us a little bit about liturgy, um, two kind of topics we wanted to get into, because mm -hmm. I know a lot of you guys probably don't know about either of those things, maybe, or, or a very limited scope of assuming our people are dumb? No, not they're dumb, they're just not exposed <laughs> to it as much. No, know? that's fair. Um, so we're interested to, to pick his brain today. I wasn't exposed to it for a while, too. Yeah. yeah. So is there any books you have you want to plug, or any favorite um, band? Yeah, well, well a couple a couple that really helped me actually in the beginning yeah. when I was moving um, into the Anglican tradition. Mm. My background is in the Baptist tradition largely. Mm. Pretty much everything I knew before, uh, basically since becoming a Christian, was all Baptist. Wow. Liturgy, tradition, theology. And so um, one of the helpful uh, theologians for me has been Peter Lightheart. Mm. Um, so his book, he, he has a little book called Theopolitan Liturgy. Mm. It's kind of a biblical look at um, sort of liturgical structure in the Bible, hmm. and um, that was really, really helpful. And then obviously, as an Anglican, the Book of Common Prayer hmm. has been really good. I didn't even know what a Book of Common Prayer or prayer book was yeah. before becoming an Anglican, and so I've, I've really gotten much more involved with it. Hmm. You want to explain what that is for our audience? Yeah, yeah. The Book of Common Prayer, it's also called the BCP, um, is it's a collection of... Of liturgies, really. It's a it's a collection. Um, it's supposed to be a book to sort of govern all of life, hmm. in some sense. You have you have a daily office, which is morning, noon, and evening prayer. Hmm. Um, and then you have a lectionary, which tells you maybe which texts everybody in the Anglican Communion is reading that day. Wow, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then um, it has your your communion liturgy or your Eucharist liturgy, mm -hmm. which is Sundays. Mm -hmm. So you have your daily prayer and then you have your weekly prayer on Sundays. And then you have, um, it moves into kind of the liturgies for all of life. Baptism for when you're an infant mm -hmm. in the Anglican tradition. Um, and it goes through all of the others. Uh, confirmation for when you're a little bit older, mm -hmm. you become kind of a member of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, there's um, your um, marriage. Mm -hmm liturgy in there so holy matrimony is in this in the in the BCP wow um, you're for when you get sick there's there's liturgies for rites of healing mm. and restoration of people um, back to the church mm -hmm. and then there's your liturgy for burial wow and wow. so all of life, life. From, from beginning to end you know mm -hmm. um, so yeah there's a lot more in there but th those are really the um, it's a, it's meant to be something you use every day and every week and and it's kind of a helpful guide or template for if you're wanting to pray 
you had like a ready sort of like script almost to Correct. Through, which is really nice hmm. that's really cool yeah I think I know we've talked about this off the show like just when we hung out outside of the podcast but I didn't grow up with liturgy I didn't even know what that word meant until probably a couple of years ago um, but yeah. for one of our wedding gifts someone got us a book of liturgies and that's like a uh, what do you call it? Presbyterian background, so like Presbyterian like liturgies. But even this morning, like there was a said like for the ritual of morning coffee or yeah. something like that or daily coffee. Yeah. And it said like for waking up in the morning, and I was like, nice, this is great. Wow. Yeah, it was like really like me and my wife prayed through it together, and then yeah, yeah it was like it's it's a nice one because I like the one of like waking up in the morning because it talks all about like God. I know I, I recognize I can't I can't control what happens today. I can only control how I react. I take everything that happens as an opportunity to reflect you, and I commit to doing my best. And it's like, I'm like, wow, I walk away like, yeah, that's, that like makes me have a good perception for the day to face whatever comes and not feel like, why is this happening? It's like, oh yeah, I pray this prayer that helped me remember this is an opportunity to represent Jesus. Okay. So I'm going to represent Jesus. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. That was one of those, I think I had a similar book when I was first getting interested in liturgy and moving in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember loving that too and it, it kind of had a liturgy for almost like little things in life mm-hmm. um, and so you identify little things in your home or little rituals that you normally have mm. um, and you you sort of turn them toward the Lord yeah so things that you would normally do year in and year out there's like there's things that we do in our culture that are already liturgical mm. we do the same things again year in and year out month in and month out yeah back to school mm-hmm huge liturgy you got to do yeah. all sorts of things for back to school yeah. so what does liturgy mean as like what is the definition is it just a guided prayer or is it deeper than that what, what can we talk about that for a bit yeah the word the word is um liturgia it comes from like mashing together two greek words so um leos which is people and ergos or erga um it's erga i think the feminine mm-hmm. uh which is work and so you have people and work so you have all sorts of different translations of that which can be typically the translation that you hear most people say is this is the work of the people Hmm. this is the whole people doing the work of God or of something Mm -hmm. but it can also have a really broad meaning too Um, in the scriptures it's used of like public works Mm -hmm. like so anything that's like public works um, Hmm. or magistrates it could be used of civil magistrates in the scriptures in Romans and then, but it's also used of, of Christ. It's used almost in the sense of um, Christ is the liturgia. Uh, he is the minister hmm. of the new covenant, the new sacrament. Um, and it can also be used of any other sort of like ritualistic acts that God's people do in offering mm-hmm. different things to him. Hmm. Um, so it's really, it can be broad. It can be sort of directed toward spiritual things. Hmm. Um, temple things, church things, but in the Anglican context, liturgy is, it typically means sort of the order of service hmm. um, for any number of things. If you have an order of service for um, Communion Sunday, mm-hmm. these are the order of things that we're going to do in a Communion Sunday service. Hmm. Um, and so order of service can be interchangeable, but it, it gets far more uh, theological than, than just like a, an administrative hmm. guide or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So how does that play into, like, because I know a lot of our churches may have unspoken liturgies that we do yep. every week, um, like mm-hmm. 
a lot of us will read a, a passage of scripture as like a call to prayer or something, yep. but no one really knows the word like liturgy, and right. sometimes that doesn't happen every time. So could you kind of explain for us, as we probably don't know a ton about Anglicanism, yeah. um, how our churches may be different, just on, on a fundamental basis? Because yeah. um, I know maybe Protestants will be like, there's there's like normal Protestants, and then there's the evil Catholics. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and we have a lot of Catholic friends who've been on a ton of the show. Um, but uh, maybe a lot of them don't know about like high church or orthodoxy and stuff like that. Um, so could you give us like a little intro into the differences between Anglicanism and like yeah. maybe us as like I don't know normal Protestants in our minds? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you hit you hit the key I think in the beginning with the, evil Catholic with evil. Oh. No, no, no. <laughs> actually, let me let me begin before what I was going to begin with was um, was all of us are Catholic. Yeah, I can't be more. This is the hill I will die on. Mm. All of us are Catholics. Mm. If you're not Catholic, you're not a Christian. Mm. Like Catholic is the term for orthodox believer of Jesus Christ. Right. We hold the once for all Catholic faith that's been passed down from the apostles, from the church fathers, from, the, from our faithful brothers and sisters mm. in church history. Mm-hmm. So we hold that. Um, that's the Catholic faith. It's all those who are in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we're not Roman Catholic, mm. which is the distinction that I would make. Right. I'm Catholic. I'm not Roman Catholic. Okay. Not that I'm. I'm not. I'm not saying evil Roman Catholics. <laughs> There's plenty of Roman Catholic people that I think are, are wonderful, yeah. and um, and people that I've learned deeply from. Mm. Um, so that that's the first thing. the The first for other first thing that I was going to start with is the. Um, you hit the nail on the head right away when you said everybody actually already has a liturgy. Mm. We all already have habits mm-hmm. or orders of service or things that we generally do when we approach God. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think the scriptures show a lot of things that the people of God did as they approached God. Mm. And so you can, you can get, um, you can search through the scriptures, you can search through church history um, for different ways that people approached the Lord in formal worship, mm. either to make an offering, or to praise Him, or to um, to do something else. Uh, so, um, the way that maybe I did it before as a Baptist was was terribly similar to how I do it now, but it just wasn't as pronounced, like you said. Mm-hmm. I never thought of the word liturgy before. We just thought, oh yeah, this is we have a call to worship. Mm. We come in, yeah. we sing a song, we get ourselves, we get our hearts ready for, to meet with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then typically, sometime after the call of worship is either a word um, about a law or God's holiness. Mm. We're confronted with sort of the holiness of God, the brightness, the purity. And there may be a time of confession after that. I'm, mm. I'm a sinner. I confess my sins. You might have a prayer of confession, a prayer of repentance or something like that. And then there's a time of Maybe prayer of absolution or forgiveness um, spoken over you. That might be done before the sermon or after the sermon. Uh, but there's, this, there's, there's a collection of either prayers or songs that sort of welcome us into God's presence, help us through being confronted with his holiness, hmm. um, help us to repent of, of our own unholiness, and then lead us in to hear his word and to feast with him. Hmm. And then to be sent out into the world with the with the people of God together in mission. So that's kind of a general wow. that and that would be very similar to how the Anglicans do it. 
and and how the Baptists honestly do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe the, one of the bigger differences would be um, we do have a focus on um, we have a focus on communion every single Sunday. That's mm-hmm. sort of the what I think is the center of the service. Yeah, um, that's the the kind of climax of the mountain that we're climbing to God's presence week mm-hmm. in and week out. And so everything is leading up to that. Um, and the, the sermon itself leads to the table of God, too. So that's mm. another connection. This, this word, that, uh, we, we talk about it often in Anglican circles, that our worship is of word and sacrament. Mm-hmm. We preach the word. Um, we hold high the word. We're, uh, one priest calls us Bible Catholics. You know, mm. um, We hold high the word of God, and it leads us to the table of God. Mm. And we feast with him week in and week out. Um, so that's the center of our service, as opposed to maybe, um, um, maybe some other other work hmm. that that might be done, either in maybe more individual work or something else like that. Um, this is sort of a work of the people, hmm. all of us together approaching the altar or table of God. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. I know uh, for us, I don't, I don't, I forget where it was in church history. I think it was some uh, pope in the eleventh century that pushed. Uh, the Eucharist out of the middle of the service and made it his uh, time for preaching. And I think Protestants do that a lot too. Or like it might maybe you have it at the end during worship or something, but it's always kind of like a fringe thing, at least for a lot of churches I attended. When I grew up, the communion was like, the most frequent I saw before I moved to Hawaii Hmm. was maybe once a month. Wow. And other than that, it'd be like, we'll do that in a couple of months. And I'd be like, it was never talked about. So when I heard people like do it every week, I'm like, I almost thought, like, guys, that's, that's, why are you doing it so much, guys? Like, we, we don't do it that much. What do we do? And then, like, as I've learned more, I'm like, this was, like, the early church. Like, this, they feasted. It wasn't also when I found out it wasn't a little tiny cup and a little wafer. They were like, oh, we're feasting. I'm like, what? Why did we stop feasting? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the same with Anglicans, too, actually. Mm. So in Reformed time, they got away from um, maybe a frequency uh, of communion as well, mm. and they went, um, but it wasn't until maybe after what's called the Oxford Movement, which was kind of a Anglo-Catholic revival movement mm-hmm. in the Anglican Church. It wasn't until then that they, they kind of brought back in mm. a, a weekly sort of conviction, we're going to take the Eucharist weekly. Yeah. So for you guys, is the Eucharist still like a little like wine and bread? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. Yeah, so we have mm-hmm. we, the, actually the the people, the laity, Laos, um, the people bake the bread for Whoa. It, and they bring in the wine. That's awesome. So they, they put the, we have a time in our service called the offertory or the offering. Mm-hmm. And that's when the people of God bring the elements up to the front of the service. Uh-huh. And then the priest receives them and, and readies the table yeah. um, to feed the people. So there's a, there's a kind of um, hand in glove kind of thing with the, the clergy and the laity acting together in the service mm-hmm. kind of back and forth yeah is there a conversation between the like the priest or the father and the people as you guys do the order service yeah or i guess the liturgy is the same thing because that's what i i never really saw that either where like the poet or not the, the priest or pastor would say something and then the people would respond and they'd be like until i started going to a presbyterian church with my wife's family when we visit michigan and like they do this whole thing where i'm like they're like uh They'll say something, a whole congregation will like say it back, and I'm like, whoa, like, you guys do this? I'm like, read the whole thing, I'm like, yeah. this isn't, 
this is really ordered. Yeah. <laughs> this is nice. Call and response. Well, then yeah. it gets to one of the fundamental aspects of, of liturgy, I think, which is, mm. is a, it's a dialogue. Mm-hmm. It is a conversation with God. Yeah. And there's, there's weird resonances there in the service where um, the priest who is standing in, a, in kind of a place of Christ mm-hmm. is speaking to the people. The speak of, people are speaking back to Christ. But oh. also the priest is not only identified that, he's also identified with the people with the church, with the lady, mm-hmm. and he's making um, an offering back to the Lord. Yeah. And so there's a both-and um, conversation um, that's taking place, and gotcha. different identities, and it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, uh, in a charismatic sense, like, where have I seen this before? And, like, I think, like, you could maybe say this, but it wouldn't be, obviously, as intentionally a liturgy, like a conversation, but when the pastor's, like, Lift up your voices, the Lord, and the whole congregation's like, ooh, like going yeah, crazy. It's absolutely. like that's like the dialogue that's also going up to God. Or for we're gonna look at specifically, jokingly, Stephen Furtick, where he's like, touch seventeen people on time. God, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, absolutely. Yeah, I, I do think there was a time where um, it was still uh, conversational when I was a Baptist, um, but but my response was much more, um, was maybe, I don't know if it was restricted to, to an inward mm-hmm. sort of expression or inward sort of re, uh, response, mm-hmm. um, but it was much more mental or, um, or uh, um, of my heart, of my, my spirit responding in gratitude mm-hmm. back to the Lord. And so there was still, there was still that um, I'm talking to God, but it was a, maybe a little bit more of uh, by myself within yeah. within this group um, who are my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. but it was, it was much more my response was much more um, individual at least before mm-hmm. that was just for me um, now one of the things that I do love about uh, maybe more a more articulated liturgy or a more um, structured liturgy is that it, it it's the it's all the people who are doing something together mm-hmm. Um, with their bodies, mm-hmm. you know, it's a much more, what I feel, a much more incarnational maybe aspect of mm. of worship. We're all kneeling together. Mm. We're all um, we we all um, sort of bow to the cross or through the cross to God as it passes. We all walk up to the the altar together. We kneel together at the altar. We receive mm. the Eucharist together. So. We're, we respond with one voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of togetherness and mm-hmm. embodiedness to it, which mm-hmm. I really love. Yeah. Wow. Because you were, were, was it that you were like Baptist? Were you ever at one point like not identified as a Christian at all? Or is it just yeah. Baptist? So what was it? Was it like non-Christian Baptist Anglican or? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So it, um, I became a Christian. Well, it's kind of difficult. I was baptized younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe when I was eight or nine, mm-hmm. if I remember correct. Uh, but I forgot about it, and mm-hmm. then I, and then I, we didn't. We weren't really a part of any church. Mm-hmm. They had gone. My parents had gone to a church maybe just long enough for me to get baptized, and then we left yeah. and moved. And it wasn't really a meaningful part of my parents' life, mm-hmm. and so it wasn't a meaningful part of my life. And so all my basically all my upbringing was apart from any Christian identity, and. Um, and especially through high school, I became a pretty ardent atheist mm-hmm. in high school up until senior year. 
And so senior year of high school is when I had sort of a, an, an encounter with the Lord and did a 180 and completely overhauled my life hmm. and, uh, and followed him ever since. And so I went straight into a more fundamentalist Baptist expression mm-hmm. in central Iowa. And then, um, and then from there, uh, I kind of did a, a short foray through the emergent church stuff mm-hmm. and, and, and landed kind of in the Reformed Baptist, Calvinist Baptist mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. And is this by yourself or is your family with you at all? Um, my, my wife has been, she was initially um, grew up Lutheran and then she came into a more um, non-denominational setting um, that she really loved. And she's been there for a long time and uh, has kind of followed me wherever I've taken her. And, and, uh, so yeah, we, we've only recently, it was 2019, that we came into the Anglican wow. Church. So okay. we're still fairly new yeah. in some respects um, to a lot of it, even though I've gotten mm. a lot of experience in the last few years. Mm. How did you find yourself coming to Anglican Church, and then we can get into maybe some distinctions of what the definition of Anglican is and all that stuff. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I went to seminary um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at a pretty prominent Baptist school, hmm. and it was a four-year Master of Divinity program, so I got in in 2015, and halfway through, a couple of years in, um, just through it, just deep dives into the scriptures, hmm. and, and through a lot of reading um, of Augustine, wow. primarily, yeah. uh, which I was doing on my own aside. Um, that was really formative for how I started to read the scriptures differently. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what I think it really comes down to, different interpretational mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. interpretational practices. And so my, um, I, cha- I shifted, uh, the way I talk about it is I shifted on four issues. Mm-hmm. I shifted on Catholicity, mm-hmm. which was kind of what I call it, like a generosity toward Christians currently around the world and toward Christians in deep history. Mm-hmm. So a generosity meaning I'm not going to just say they're non-Christians. Right. Whereas before, when I first came into a even more fundamentalist Baptist setting, there was nothing good before the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even some of the Reformers were a little yeah, suspect. A little suspect. You know? yeah. And so, uh, so I have a lot more generosity. I, I wanted and desired a lot more generosity to learn from Christians currently around the world mm-hmm. um, who are very different than me. You know, especially today, you've probably heard the figure, the average Christian in the world is is a sort of middle-aged African right. woman. Right. Yeah, I have. And, yeah. and so there's a whole world of Christianity that, quite frankly, me, as a Westerner, um, I'm, I'm separate from. Right. We have deep connections and deep similarities, and um, but they have a lot of perspective that I need. And so Catholicity was a huge one, generosity. Um, sacramental theology, mm. which basically... I've come to define as as God uses stuff. Mm. He works through stuff. Mm. He works through um, material creation, and he works through people, mm-hmm. and in in deep ways. Um, so there's not there's not an antithesis between God and the world. It's actually quite the opposite. God created the world in love, and yeah, the world fell into sin. But the more fundamental aspect of the world is that it's God's loving creation. Mm. It was good, um, and and. Acts seventeen twenty eight says, "In Him we live and move and have our being." Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's a togetherness um, that we have with God that's really deep. So sacramental theology, God works His grace through stuff. 
pre and postmodern hermeneutics. Hmm. So as I started to read Augustine and the Church Fathers, I started to see how they were interpreting the scriptures. Hmm. And it seemed to be a lot broader, hmm. different hmm. than the way that I was being taught in my seminary studies. So my seminary studies really capitalized on what's called historical grammatical mm -hmm. interpretation. Right. Which is, I think what everybody comes to, to know, you know, in the U.S. as they become Christians, mm -hmm. you read the Bible in context, mm -hmm. you look for the, uh, what the historical context of the text was, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you look for how they would have then interpreted the text in their historical context. Mm -hmm. You uh, sort of glean a theological principle Mm. out of that situation yeah you then bridge the gap of history and you try to apply that theological principle in our historical setting that we have today yeah well that's what we that's what we teach like our our organization that we work with has a bible school it teaches that the that inductive method where it's like do a historical background report and then you interpret through the lens of the original hearers or readers and then like you just said like you extrapolate what we call the timeless truth yeah. And then you write an application point from the timeless truth. Yeah. So what's different? What is the uh, the more broader sense that you come to learn? What does that look like and how to interpret? Yes. So the historical grammatical interpretive method didn't come up until quite late. Hmm. Um, you know, after after the Enlightenment, after the theological disciplines got divided up mm -hmm. um, into historical theology and theology proper and mm -hmm. you know all the others. Um, and so what I, do, what I just described as a historical grammatical would be only a portion of, of one sense out of what the, the, the church in history used to have four senses of, of interpreting the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so there's, um, they call it the, quad, the quadriga, which is the fourfold sense of, of the scriptures. And so mm -hmm. there's a literal sense, and that's kind of what do the scriptures themselves mean? Mm -hmm. Um, what is the plain meaning of the text? Mm -hmm. What do they mean in context? Um, and then there's the secondary one is the typological yeah. sense or the allegorical mm -hmm. sense. And that one typically means um, how is this fulfilled in Christ? Mm. Mm. There's a lot more typological speak lately, like maybe the past 10 years, past right. five, eight, 10 years, um, especially with Tim Keller, who's a big, mm. one of his major sermons. There's that new and better. Jesus is a new and better Jacob. He's a new and better Abraham. He's a new and better, yeah. you know, Adam. And Seems like that's like all what the book of Hebrews is about. Absolutely. Very typological book. Yeah. Um, and so um, typology or typological sense is sort of the secondary sense. How is this, how is Christ already present in those things? Mm -hmm. and, and what is the fulfillment of those things in Christ? The third one is the tropological sense, which is what you might call the liturgical sense. Hmm. Actually, and the, and um, the tropological sense is um, how is this coming into my life as I'm a part of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, and I'm operating. Um, it might be called the moral sense. What mm -hmm. ought I then do, or what do I do as one who is in Christ and a part of this sacred tradition? Hmm. Um, so, a lot of a lot of the historical grammatical sort of jumps from the literal sense into the tropological sense. Hmm. The application is right. like all tropology. Like, what should I do now? Yeah. Now that I'm identified as this 
thing, this person. Yeah. Made in God's image. Um, and then the last sense is the anagogical sense, and anagogy is like an ascending, a going up. Hmm. Um, and this is the the sense of uh, what what um, what will be true at the last day when all things are consummated. Hmm. Um, so, like an example of this that's often given is is the temple in the Old Testament. So, if you read the Old Testament, people had a temple. Um, or a tabernacle, and so the literal sense would be, oh yes, the people of God had a tabernacle where they met with God, they communed with God's presence there. The tropological sense, or the typological sense, then is, is Jesus is our tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. He is the very presence of God on earth, in bodily form, um, uniting Himself with human nature. Um, that tells us something about Jesus, and it tells us something back before about the temple, mm-hmm. about what the temple is supposed to be. Yeah. The tropological sense is that your bodies are a living temple. Mm-hmm. You were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived in the temple, the Shekinah glory in the temple. In the, mm-hmm. yeah. the same, the same Spirit of Jesus Christ wow. that that fluttered over him in his baptism, and was is his Spirit mm-hmm. is now. Us, we are now walking temples of yeah. God on this earth. Yeah. Um, so we live differently, live morally differently because of it. And finally, the the anagogical sense: what will be true in the last day? Well, we have no temple because the Lord will be our temple in the last day. We will see yeah. Him face to face. So there's a kind of blooming kind of maximalism to, to Scripture. Then yeah. is that you can find the Lord. Everywhere. That was the conviction of, yeah. of the church fathers. Very cool. Very cool. As you were speaking, and I was thinking about like typological stuff, and like one of one thing I find very interesting is you know, looking in the Old Testament for Jesus. Like, there's I know Mike Winger has a very long series on YouTube of Jesus in the Old Testament, which I haven't got to start yet. But like knowing like a little bit of different things, where like oh Jesus is this, Jesus is that, always super cool. But and I, I think this might relate a little bit, but. The other day I was, we were, we're in this, like, I, I jokingly call it a book club. I, a number of us on the staff are going through a book about um, discipleship making movements. And, like, how can we do that in Hawaii? And how can we see it done? And so we'll meet every week and talk about it. And so one of the things that the guy said was that he was like, this is a thing that caused Eve to sin. And so we want to watch out for this thing. And I don't want to get into the thing because I don't get a whole, we'll go off track. Which, but I disagreed with what he was saying. I was like, yeah. no, that's not why. And I was, writing, I was writing my thoughts and I was like, Eve didn't sin because of this. She sinned because she was promised equality with God. And then I was like, oh my gosh. Eve looked at equality with God as something to be grasped. And Paul tells us in Philippians that Jesus did not look at equality with God as something to be grasped. And that's why he was like elevated. And I was just like, had this little moment of like, I was just, I was just writing like, I disagree because of this. And then I had turned into this like revelatory, like, oh my gosh, like Jesus is so much better. That's like good. he fulfilled what the first humans were called to do. Yeah. And it's like this little thing. Like, I don't even know if that's like why Paul even thought about that when he was writing it. Yeah. Cause it's not even all, it's not even about Eve. It's just about like Christian living. Yeah. You know, it's about like be nice to everybody around you and be humble because Jesus humbled himself. Didn't look like equality of God to be grasped. Yeah. And I was like, Holy cow. But so good. Yeah. Just like that little, I don't know if that would technically be typology in there. And it's, I don't know if that counts, but I want to share it because I just got super excited about it. Yeah, day. no, I think there, I think there could be definitely. I think I would put that in the typological category for sure. Okay. I mean, you're making, you're making that connection to Christ. Mm-hmm. 
yeah Christ is Christ is the um, he he inverts the sin of the garden mm-hmm yeah uh, Eve saw that the fruit was beautiful to the eye mm. and good for food and so she took and she broke and she gave to Adam huh and in the liturgy week in and week out we repeat sort of the what's called the words of institution the institution of the Lord's Supper yeah and, and, and we, we say well Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said take this eat this is my body which is given for you whenever you do this do this in remembrance of me it's the same sort of yeah. liturgical action but he takes it and he redeems the world with it hmm. rather than it's sort of Eve took it in order to fall away from the Lord's presence right yeah the taking the breaking the giving to Adam and so yeah all of those typological features are it's, the, the scripture is filled with those actions yeah wow that's amazing yeah so I have a question for um, how Anglicanism has like affected your spirituality hmm. and like a lot of people, like maybe our audience or whatever, and I know I used to think this might feel like, oh, those high church traditions might be limiting or restricting in spirituality because I don't see a very charismatic expression. Like, yeah. in my sense, like charismatic or free in the spirit means like, let's raise our hands, jump around and worship, let's run around, lay hands on people and pray. Yeah. And I, I know in, those, in some high church traditions, it's like, okay, we're going to be a lot more like... Um, what do you call uh, diligent or, or intentional with our actions? You know, like we have a we have a liturgy, the order of service, and we're going to follow that. Yeah. Um, but how has yeah how has liturgy like deepened your sense of spirituality and connection to the Father in your yeah. personal life? Yeah, that's good. Well, I I mean I, I some somewhat uh, I'm in agreement in some ways that so much of liturgy can be dour and boring hmm. and stifling and stuffy. And so liturgy should be triumphant. Oh, I like that. It should it should yeah. be us marching up to the the mountaintop, you know, to feast with the Lord. Like it should be boisterous in some ways. And so uh, there is a lot of liturgy that is it's too it's too stifling. Um, so the, the Anglican liturgy, I can only speak I can speak out of my own personal experience, and then I also speak out of a very a small end of the Anglican world, mm-hmm. which is the Anglican Church of North America. And we've, they've only been around for just around a decade, so they're not. Oh, wow. A lot of them came, we formed out of the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. in America. And, um, and so there's a lot of connections that we have with the Episcopal Church, a lot of tradition that comes into the ACNA. Um, but the ACNA was formed primarily um, out of our relationships with Africa. Wow. So really, the ACNA is, is from Rwanda back to the U.S. Hmm. Um, our bishops were consecrated by Rwandans. Hmm. Um, so there's and and other other African um, African dioceses and provinces, and so we get a lot of our flavor in the ACNA from Africa, which means that we actually have quite a bit of charismatic. Um, sort of expression in the Anglican Church of North America. So mm-hmm. we, a lot of people will describe themselves, their diocese in the ACNA, as three streams. They're trying to hold together evangelical, um, preaching of the word, charismatic, 
movement of the spirit and Catholic sacraments. Mm. And they, they're trying to hold all three of those things together. And so some of them sort of lean on two mm-hmm. more than one of the others or one. Uh, but there's some dioceses I think that, that really do sort of hold those three um, together well. I forgot your question. Um, just like how the it's changed your spirituality mm. and and how it's deepened it in a sense. Yeah, so when I first found liturgy, um, I had come from, I think when you discover it, it really changes your expectations of it. I, when I first found it, I had not been in a Christian tradition that, that had it. And so it was, it had a lot of allure to me in some ways. I, I really appreciated saying the same words that have been spoken for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed um, that it, um, it, it involved my body in worship, not just my mind or my heart. Um, but my wife, my wife grew up in the, in the like a, a conservative Lutheran hmm. tradition, so she had known it for a long time. And for her, it was stifling. Hmm. It was dour. It was like constricting, mm-hmm. and she felt much more free in a non-denominational setting hmm. um, to commune with the Lord. Yeah. And so she's worked through, in coming to Anglican tradition, she's worked through a lot of that, um, her own issues with it or her own expectations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me. Um, I hit it, you know, at a really good time when I was reading Jamie Smith's um, You Are What You Love, um, which talks a lot about your habits or the things that really form your loves, your desires. Um, and so you, what you do will, will sort of paint you into a corner of, of what you will love. Um, and so what it's done is it's given me new habits, mm-hmm. which has helped me to paint me in a different corner toward, gotcha. toward loving the Lord more. So your habits, what you what you do, will change your loves, not the other way around. Yeah, um, which is what is we so often think. Hmm. Um, we think that ideas will change us, um, but actually, it has a lot to do with our bodies, hmm. our habits. Um, so the daily office, having morning, noon, and evening prayer, has really, like you said, set my day up right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Reminded me about the Lord's presence in the middle of the day, and sent me into sleep Mm -hmm. um, which is an image of death uh, in peace with God wow that's a beautiful way to look at sleep yeah (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) that's where we find death before the fall Hmm. is Adam Adam slept the sleep of death and God cut him in half and took Eve Mm -hmm. out of his heart and, uh, and rose him up from death Mm-hmm. Um, there's, so there's a kind of death and resurrection even before the fall. Wow, which is really cool. Wow, mm-hmm. there's that typology, right? So much typology. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's really honestly. Wow. That's what liturgy. That's what I do think. Liturgy is embodied typology. Mm-hmm. What we do in the Sunday service is we are the called people of God mm-hmm. approaching the throne of God. Mm-hmm. We offer the Lord Jesus once for all given yeah. um, there's a the liturgical time we're closer to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection than we are to last spring's day hmm. as um, Charles Taylor might put it um, yeah so there's there's different things that have to do with time and 
and who we are, different identities. Um, yeah, so liturgy's, liturgy's huge. It's really, it's really changed how I see myself and myself in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm. How do you see yourself in the world now versus before? Well, as a priest, um, very different before than before. Um, you know, I, when you when somebody preaches, um, preaching, uh, there's a really awesome Roman Catholic theologian named Andrew Willard Jones, and he says this is a really mind-bending article that he wrote on a website called New Polity. That's called Liturgical Cosmos which is super good. I highly recommend it. And, uh, but it's also, it's, a, it's um, deep sledding mm. um, too. But he's, he would say something like the, the time of preaching, the giving of the word, isn't just a time to hear from the Lord. It's, it's the time in the service of tropology. It's where this man or this priest Mm-hmm. is standing in the place of the apostles speaking an authoritative word from the Lord. He is, he is acting in a, in a different or exalted or um, overflowing identity as one who is in the tradition of the apostles. Um, he's not just uh, John or Bill getting up in service and speaking a nice, you know, encouraging word. Mm-hmm. Um, there's right. a There's a there's a collection of history that happens in the liturgy where um, you're becoming something mm. um, that you weren't outside or you're not normally maybe. Or you are, actually. It's what you always are, but it's a sort of reminder mm-hmm. or representation of it every Sunday mm. Yeah. Um, of what, what reality really is. Mm-hmm. I forget what you... No, I think that's... that's I was... I think that's kind of answering. Um, I was asking how your sense has changed. Yeah, because yeah, you're saying it's changed yeah. a lot of your the, like perspectives of this right. As a priest, um, being ordained as a priest then is a, is a is an office. At least in the Anglican tradition, a priest hold a priest and deacons and bishops hold the office lifelong. Mm. I will never. Wow. I'll never not be a priest. Even Lord, if you stop, Lord, you, Lord willing. Yeah. Could you like stop like? running the like facilitating the liturgy and still hold the mm-hmm. priest and deacons too okay so that's a big that's a, that would be a big difference okay in the baptist world when i um, deacons are you're a deacon for maybe a year or two mm-hmm. and then you can step down from being a deacon um, but in the anglican tradition you receive a special grace to to take the office of deacon and you become a an icon of jesus christ as the servant Mm-hmm. In the world, that is your identity. And the priest, the priest is, is similar. You become a living picture of, of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as the priest of the whole world. You are um, you are caring for God's people. You are the shepherd. Yeah. And that's your that's your new identity. And so for me, there's a there's a sort of psychological change that's sort of taking place, and it's it has nothing to do with sort of feeling exalted or above others or something like that. But it does, it has changed the way I think about myself and, and the way I think about others. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, should, it should change the way you think about others. Yeah. You should then care about people in a different way, I think. 
You want every pastor and every priest to act that way. Yeah. All the time. Well, it's like a different. It's a. Because every Christian has the mandate to care for one another. Yeah. You know, but when you step into a spiritual authority. Yeah. You know, it's not like the sense of authority with yeah. a job where you get like Jesus says. It's not like where you lord it over each mm-hmm. other, and it's that you serve more people. Yeah. And something Gary V says. Um, you know Gary V. Yeah. 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 He he says this thing and made me think like, are you a Christian? Because he's like, look, he's like, he's like, the more you go up in leadership, the more bosses you have. He's like, you have more people care about and you're responsible for them. And I thought that sounds like Jesus. Yeah. He's like, I have like 500 people under me that I am responsible for and I have to care for them and serve them. And he like, he's like using like these Christian pictures. I'm like, that's such a good example. But it's like, yeah, you would you would expect, and like obviously in James we see this too, where it says, like, long enough, many of you become teachers because we're held to a higher standard. Yeah. There's a higher standard of, oh, now you are serving God through serving his people and you're responsible to God for how you lead his people. And so, yeah, you would want all your priests and pastors and fathers and deacons to take that very seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's something that's spoken in the ordination liturgy is you know the deep severity of punishment that you will receive if you misuse your office. Wow. There's a, a sort of yeah. very uh, frightening words. So, yeah, it's it really has changed. It's changed my daily habits. It's changed my, my mentality um, mm-hmm. as I think about myself in the world. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, what's the, at least your um, part of... Anglicanism, like your pocket that you're in. What is their view on use of alcohol and stuff like that? Oh yeah, most most of the Anglican world. Well, it, I mean, it, I shouldn't say that because it's so broad. Um, but uh, our our corner is is very open and um, and loves to partake of alcohol <laughs> in general, and we and we use and we use wine in service too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so that's one thing we we take it as a, a gift from the Lord, and um, it's something that, uh, yeah, it actually that's a that's a it's a piece that we could talk about even liturgically. Mm-hmm. Wine is given, um, sort of back to the Lord. Wine is wine is brought into the church, and wine and bread, and wine and bread are are glorifications of wheat. And grapes. Mm. We take something, we craft it as a people. We we use artistry. Um, we we beautify and glorify the earth, and then we bring it back into the Lord's presence. Mm. And that's something that you know Peter Lightheart will talk about this all the all the time. He he's, he talked about in the the garden was created, and Adam and Eve were set in the midst of the garden. But what was set outside the garden? Well, if you look back in in Genesis, it's this land called Havilah, mm. and in Havilah it says there were precious stones. Mm. And it seems like the idea is that Adam and Eve were supposed to go out of the garden and obtain those precious stones and bring them back into the presence of God, bring them into beautify the garden. Mm. The garden was meant to be more glorif- glorified by the people, by God's images on earth. Mm. And they're supposed to use, use this world and glorify this world with it and because then at the end of the story in the book of Revelation we see the kingdom of heaven um, the city of God descending out of the heavens to earth Mm -hmm. and what's in the foundation 
of the of the city of God. It's all the precious stones mm. of Babylon. Yeah, and those are the, those are there in the foundations of the city, and so in in the end of the book of Revelation, it says that the kings of the earth shall bring their gifts into God's kingdom. Mm. Um, and I, so, I, liturgy is all about bringing culture, which is human um, making, human glorifying um, the earth, human artistry and craft, and you're bringing culture back into glorifying. Mm-hmm. Um, the presence of the Lord. Well, That's liturgy is, is about that return gift. Yeah. Mm. So we love alcohol. We love wine. It is a glorious gift. <laughs> <laughs> wine. Uh, there's uh, Peter and there's another guy. Um, his name's not just a guy. Another faithful theologian. His name's uh, James Jordan. We'll say that um, wine is liquid Sabbath. It's meant. It's mm. meant for the end of the day. Bread is meant for the beginning of the day. Gives you strength to go out and work, and wine is meant for the end, mm. which brings you rest and peace. Yeah, I was thinking yesterday, like we were out, we had a work event, and we got to see the movie Jesus Revolution. Yeah, and I've heard about it. Yeah, it was pretty good. It's like usually Christian movies are end up being pretty cheesy, but this one was pretty good. Um, I didn't think it was cheesy, and I, and I liked it. Um, but when we got back, like my wife was washing the dishes and getting ready for some stuff today. She was leading a Bible study, so she had to take her notes, and then. She's making some, like, banana bread for it. So she's just doing her thing, and I'm, like, sitting there just waiting for her to be done reading. And I was like, man, I'd love to have a beer right now. Like, just, it's 9 p.m., yeah. just open my Bible reading. Like, that would be super relaxing. Yeah, yeah. and I was like, yeah, so I mean, that's cool. I like the liquid yeah. Sabbath. Yeah, we love I'm going to go talk to Spencer tell him, like, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's time. It's time. Yeah, change You're the denying my Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, I can't have any right now though. What? Because we just started Lent yeah. yesterday, so that's one of the things we fast from sweets, meat, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good, it's a good. Thing. Well, the good and faithful. Could someone say someone's like a? This is so random, but someone was like a, a lifter or something like they lift a lot of weights. Can they have like whey protein, or can they not have any meat, like protein at all? Yeah, uh, they can, I'm sure. I mean, everybody fasts a little differently. Mm, mm. And you fast according to what's what's healthy for your body, mm-hmm. too. You know, you don't want somebody who's 90 and super weak fasting <laughs> from, you know, from all that. Well, they'll definitely enter Sabbath. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> long Sabbath, yeah. yeah. Uh, sleep and death, Sabbath. right? Uh, yeah, so the, we, if you if you can. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it can extend to other things that have, okay. have control over your life mm-hmm. um, that you're trying to give that space back over to the Lord mm-hmm. cool it seems like high church tradition like such as Anglicanism has a higher emphasis on your part of a community and that community is in relationship to God and you yourself are in relationship to God but with your community whereas the more now common American evangelical non-denominational is Focus on your relationship with God. Yeah, that's it. You know, I, and that would seem to explain why maybe some people go to church and they'll just merely participate and they'll stand there and they. But when it leaves, they don't maybe hang out and talk. They don't. They might not have community in their church and they just leave early. Yeah. So I think that that seems to be like a really cool thing that I I really like the how community feeling yeah. high church traditions feel. Like, it can. You know. It can. I mean, they, 
they have all the pitfalls of of mm. American consumerism and, mm. and American yeah. Christianity too. So sure. there's you can find plenty of high church, terrible churches. You know. Yeah. Um, Go and do the individualistic, thing transactional. Mm. Yeah. You know, pay your money and get your, you know, Jesus bread. Mm. Just yeah. awful, basically simony. Mm. But, um, but there can be there because of the habits mm-hmm. that are in place. There can be an opportunity to reflect as as a whole body, and to act as a whole body. Yeah. And, um, that I really like, and and I would say evangelicalism is probably coming out of um, a see a, a an era mm-hmm. where where it was pre- pretty focused on that individual relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think maybe there's been more corrections to that, even even yeah. like architecturally, mm. like we don't see as much of a trend of like black box worship, right? Anymore, right? That was a huge trend in the 2000s and 2010s. Yeah. Oh yeah. But now there's. I went a lot to of, a church that used to be a Walmart essentially, or yeah. a Home Depot. Yeah. Was, yeah. Now there's now there's a lot more windows in churches that are being mm. built now. Light is is much more important. Yeah. Um. To, to Christian architecture. As opposed to like engineering the environment completely yeah. by computers. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Fog machines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Environmental haze. Yeah. It's <laughs> what they call it in the industry. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And I love the, the church. I, I look at like old Catholic buildings and like old churches and I'm, or even less old architecture in general. Mm-hmm. Like you see these castles and like old downtown, historical downtown. Like, Detroit has beautiful architecture, mm, yeah. and I was always think like, God, what? Happened? When did we get so boring? Like, yeah. you can see it also with like how they design McDonald's now. Like when we were kids, McDonald's was bright and colorful and like yeah. fun, and now it's so minimalist, yeah. postmodern, like yeah. grays. And I'm like, what? Or like, have you seen like the children's like the new children's like uh, nurseries? Well, instead of like bright colors, it's all like wood colors, wood <laughs> the shades of wood color. Have you seen those? No. Like, Oh man, it's terrible. Right. They're like I see them sometimes like on trendy little things. It's like beige. I got the yeah, it's all beige. It's like I got my nursery set up. I'm like, where's the life? Yeah, <laughs> like, he took all the color. At least put Noah's Ark back. Yeah, yeah. you know yeah. as problematic as that is, like yeah. just please. Yeah, <laughs> it's my now it. now it's a uh, different shades of brown and beige rainbow. Yeah, shiplap. Yeah, for those buildings, is that a, a similar aspect to the like taking nature and creating this something beautiful for God? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a glorification. Um, maybe even God's dwelling place on earth. Mm-hmm. You know, he started with a tabernacle. Mm-hmm. So God didn't have... God walked the earth with his people mm-hmm. in the tabernacle. And then he finally... Um, he, he, while he... While he does not... Um, simply dwell in things made by human hands he does he did give his his special presence to his people in the temple in one location mm-hmm. and um, and so you see and you see the temple glorified so mm-hmm. the, the temple is built with stone and uncut stone rough yeah. hewn and wood and it's built mm-hmm. with straight lines to show the truth of God and, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah there's architecture's Enormous um, to our experience in worship. Mm. To I mean, so much of Christian architecture was built to direct your eyes up mm. to the heavens. Yeah. You know, all the ancient 
um, cathedrals were like, lift your eyes up to the Lord. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so that to see a change in architecture is to see a change in theology, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll see trends back in a different mm. direction. Get yeah. rid of the black box era. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my uh, my wife's family, that Presbyterian, go to one of the churches they go to, because parents go to like one Presbyterian church and like, the kids go to another, but the one that is in Detroit is a former Catholic church. Mm. And so it still has all the paintings on the ceilings. And like, awesome. it's super cool. Like the way the building is built, like you don't really need a microphone to yeah. get your voice from the front to the back. Yeah. And it's just like the physics of the room is just to like echo sound. Yeah. Like, this is so cool. There's, uh, I think about it in the terms of, in the terms of the incarnation a lot. I think mm-hmm. about liturgy and I think about church buildings. And you can fall off the horse on either side. Mm-hmm. You can either overemphasize Jesus's deity, uh, which sort of overwhelms his humanity. Mm-hmm. Or you can, he becomes like a Superman. Right. Or like a, you know, Hercules, mm-hmm. demigod kind of figure. Yeah. Or you can overemphasize his humanity, which constricts his deity. Mm-hmm. His, his deity is not as free somehow by his. Um, so you gotta stay on the horse, you gotta stay. No. Yeah. Somehow, in the mystery of the incarnation, mm-hmm. um, his humanity is fully expressed. And so is his divinity. There's no conflict between the two um, in a kind of nature, supernature kind of conflict. There's, there's nothing of the sort. They're both fully glorified and expressed. And that has implications for how we worship. And even our buildings. Our buildings can be, um, our worship can be overly spiritual, individual, mental, emotional, or they can be wooden, ritualistic in a bad way, um, just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Um, th- uh, what would be basically Pharisaical? Mm. And so, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he was he was talking about tithing, he didn't tell them to stop tithing dill and mint. He just said you you ought to do both. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there's, there's a kind of both and where, where I, I, I think about it in the same sort of incarnational way. That we worship in spirit and truth. We worship in our bodies, with our bodies, as bodies. Um, we're not spirits in bodies. We are sort of embodied mm-hmm. creation of God. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we worship. We worship with a kind of ritual and form. And we worship freely with our minds engaged and our hearts engaged. And, and we want that. That's what we want of all worship. Mm-hmm. That's what the liturgy is supposed to lead you to do. Yeah. It shouldn't be constricting. Um, it should be actually resourcing you with words and pictures and phrases that, that's placing you back into the Bible. Mm. Um, that's the, what the best liturgies do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a guy on probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half, I don't know, um, who was Orthodox. And he came from like a Calvinistic tradition into Orthodoxy. Mm. And he was talking about how one of the things he loves about orthodoxy is how they try to worship God in every possible way. They're like, that's why we burn incense is because we want to offer a pleasing scent to the Lord. And that's like why we have our, our, our buildings like the way we do and why we hang beautiful pictures is because we're trying to show beauty all expressed towards glorifying God yeah. in like every way. 
and I was like, that's really interesting. I never thought about like, yeah, yeah like, oh, this candle can be worship right now to the Lord. Yeah, and and they're all symbols. Mm-hmm. And even they're all biblical symbols. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were candles in the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. There was incense in the tabernacle. In, in the book of Revelation, the incense is the prayers of the people. Yeah. And so there's a neat connection that where a physical thing in worship can remind you of your own prayer that's ascending to the Father. Mm. Um, and so that's that's where the, where the sort of play back and forth. It's not just that the that the symbols, um, the physical thing is is important. It's not that just that it reminds you to do a moral thing. They kind of have this interplay, um, and the symbol is there to sort of enter back into mm. um, a kind of prayerfulness. And, mm. Yeah, it's wow. cool. I love mm-hmm. that. I love the Orthodox people. They're awesome. Yeah. Mm. Let's say someone they love what you're saying mm. and all the ways all the ways you're describing it, um, and they're like, "But I don't understand the difference between uh, high church and like Anglicanism and like like Roman Catholics or uh, Orthodox." Yeah. Like, good. what is the difference between those things? Oh man, with you guys. So there can be a lot of difference, and there could, there's just I, I say all of us. Um, confess the creeds mm. all of us are um, but there's different um, there's different convictions about what um, sort of renders somebody outside or mm. less than mm-hmm. true right um, but generally speaking the the Roman Catholic Church um, would have certain doctrines surrounding the Eucharist mm-hmm. and surrounding um, the person of Mary um, that are required for belief mm. um, to be a part of to be a part of the church. Um, the Anglican Church doesn't require those things. Many Anglicans who do mm-hmm. hold very similar um, sort of teachings and beliefs. Um, Anglo- uh, the Roman Catholic Church also just has a pope. Mm. They have a magisterium. Um, so there's a um, which can be really beneficial in many ways, and also could be less than beneficial in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anglicanism holds to three historic offices: mm. um, deacons, priests, and bishops. Uh, many evangelical traditions hold that the office of bishop and the office of presbyter or priest mm. is the same office. Yeah. They just kind of are interchangeable words. Um, whereas the Anglican tradition would just say, "Well, no, they seem like." There are three historic offices. They're different roles. The bishop is the pastor of pastors. Mm-hmm. Um, in the the Eastern Orthodox faith, sort of developed separately, but in conversation with the Western Church, mm-hmm. and so they're different um, in a number of ways. Especially their emphasis on icons mm-hmm. in the service. Um, they're very biblical in in ways. They're trying to to the icons are there to show that there's a great cloud of witnesses right. in our worship oh, together. Okay. Mm. We're, um, and there's a similar thing to all three, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and Roman Catholic, where our worship is in the heavens. Mm. You know, there's a, there's a, a time in our service where we, we say, lift up your hearts. We say, we lift them up to the Lord. Mm. Well, um, that sort of lifting up of our hearts to the Lord is a liturgical act of, of being exalted into the heavenly places. Um, to be with God. Our worship is in the heavenly places. It's our conviction. 
We're not just simply in a location on Earth in a back room of some office complex or something. No, no we're actually present with the Lord in the heavens, surrounded by um, all the angels and archangels and all the heavenly host. Um, so our worship is done in the heavens, and then we go back down into the world um, in the peace of Christ to give the joy and blessing back to the world. Mm. So there's a kind of ascension that takes place mm. in the service, uh, which sort of mirrors um, Moses's ascent up the mountain to be yeah. meet with God, and then his face shone with it when he went down to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a kind of similar thing. All all three traditions, Orthodox, Anglican, Roman Catholic, will emphasize certain things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have minor um, administrative and they would have some liturgical differences or I would say liturgic, there are different liturgical traditions that develop differently mm. and so when you go to an orthodox service it feels like an orthodox service there's incense everywhere, there's bells mm. um, there's singing that's a little bit different because it's, it's almost like going to a different country and mm-hmm. they, they just do things differently in that country it's a different tradition mm-hmm. so they developed a different Christian tradition Along, along those lines and the same with the Roman Catholicism um, Rome developed in a, in a specific tradition and then since the Reformation Protestantism or um, reformed um, however you want to call it tradition mm-hmm. developed in its own way its own sort of form and mm-hmm. fashion mm-hmm. Um, it was really maybe a reaction to Roman Catholicism in some senses, and then it started to become development on its own terms. Mm. Um, and so we have a different tradition. And then within sort of, if you include Anglicans in the Protestant group, which there's some that don't, but the majority do, um, then there's differences between Protestant groups. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're, they're very similar. Mm. We all confess the Lord Jesus. and. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I, I love Catholicity. I love the generosity. Mm-hmm. That's my bend. Um, I used to be in a place where I, I was very skeptical about the faith of Roman Catholics mm. and Eastern Orthodox, um, but that's not where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. I love yeah, my brothers and sisters in, in those traditions, and I, yeah, I, env- I envy them for some things that they do, uh, <laughs> and there's some things that, you know, Anglicanism is kind of a, a weird blend of, of mm-hmm. East and West in some of the things that we do, yeah. especially mm-hmm. our prayer book, our 2019 prayer book is a weird um, sort of blend of some Eastern Orthodox um, liturgy mm. um, and, and also, you know, Protestant. Mm-hmm. So there's some cool things. Yeah, yeah. you oh. said that uh, that Anglicans land on the Protestant side of things. For someone listening, they might think, well, it seems like they're much more Catholic or Orthodox. Why would you say they land in the, in the Protestant camp more? Um, we don't have a magisterium. We don't mm-hmm. fall under a pope. Mm-hmm. The Pope, we might consider the Pope um, a really faithful bishop or archbishop mm-hmm. of the church. Like, and and so I, we we as much as we would honor a, a spiritual leader, um, we would do that. We would extend that sort mm-hmm. of honor and grace to him. Um, but but Anglicans wouldn't wouldn't hold his word that's spoken ex cathedra from the yeah. chair as you know, the voice of God. Um, um, so, yeah, we, we might, the liturgy might feel Catholic or, or Roman Catholic in a, mm-hmm. in a sense of like being 
very um, lofty and and articulated and mm-hmm. um, but at the same time Anglicanism one of one of the stripes of Anglicanism is is we really hold high the authority of the scriptures mm. which is what I said before we're like Bible Catholics right we love the Word of God um, and it's the, our, our worship is based on word and sacrament that's mm. really huge um, our authority of, of all of our doctrines comes from the word of the Lord mm-hmm. and, and uh, as much as we would appreciate and fold in the tradition of the church um, the basic authority is still mm. from the scriptures mm-hmm. that's what we that's what that's what the reformers saw the church fathers doing and and that's what we still do mm-hmm. today so you wouldn't hold to like papal authority, but apostolic succession is still a thing, right? Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Sweet. You guys differ on what you believe about Mary. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anglicanism runs the spectrum on all sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. um, personally, I I love uh, we. There's a category in Anglicanism called um, pious beliefs, mm-hmm. which are beliefs that um, we may not be able to necessarily found in scripture but we kind of hold them loosely anyway mm-hmm. um, and we would never maybe preach on them on a Sunday morning we would mm-hmm. never say that this is required of anybody to believe for salvation right, right. Um, so there's uh, I have some pious beliefs about um, Mary that I, I love I love most of the, the teachings of mm-hmm. the Roman Catholic teachings on Mary mm-hmm. um, but that's because I've there, um, I started interpreting the scriptures, and then my theology has kind of changed, such that I can actually um, enjoy sort of these doctrines of Mary without it diminishing Jesus, yeah. which is the which is the fear. Hmm. You know, if, if you exalt Mary, you're diminishing Jesus's glory, and so I just don't think that that that's the way that that works. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Gotcha. Cool. How long are the um morning, afternoon, and evening prayers usually? They can be about 30 to 40 minutes, um, the larger ones. In total ones. or just one? like just, just one. Okay. Yeah, morning can be about 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. There is um, in the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, which is the ACNA's Book of Common Prayer that they have, they, um, they also have family versions, hmm. which take maybe eight or 10 minutes hmm. which are awesome we use those all the time mm-hmm. for um, we do sort of evening devotions with our two-year-old hmm. and that was one of the big things that brought us to Hawaii was I saw a group of Anglicans you know I, I had dinner with an Anglican priest here and his family and they did evening prayer and his kids he had five kids and they're all you know spanning the age range up to maybe nine or ten mm-hmm. and nearly all of them knew all of the responses to evening prayer by heart. Mm. It was something they did as a family nightly. Mm. And it and it's it's like catechesis. It's like you're you're being trained to take in the word of the Lord, to memorize it, and it's forming what you say back to God. Mm. And that was something where I was like, we have a new baby at the time, this was back in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need this. I need to know how to form my child into mm. a good faithful Christian and, mm. and uh, give her sort of the tradition of the faith and, and the scriptures and so evening prayer is huge um, in for us the family evening prayer is really easy it's a really great way for somebody to dip their toes into 
into a liturgical mm-hmm. tradition, um, family evening prayer. All of those can be found as PDFs actually online for free. Okay, cool. Um, if you just Google like ACNA evening prayer PDF or family evening prayer PDF or something like that, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Um, should we get to the last question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, every guest we have on, we ask the same, this last question. Uh, because the reason we started the show was to help people who are questioning the faith or questioning mm-hmm. Christianity, wrestling through tough questions, find those answers, and be able to be more confident moving forward in their Christianity. And so we like to ask people, what has been the hardest thing that you've encountered as a Christian or the hardest question that you've come across? Mm-hmm. And what was it? What was the answer that you found? Or what was the thing that you found that mm-hmm. helped you to maybe answer or not answer but still continue as a Christian yeah that's really good so attending attending my move from a kind of evangelical Baptist worldview if you like to call it into a more sacramental tradition or faith um, there were points in time where it did feel like I was losing my Christianity Mm. you know all of the safeguards of evangelicalism all the doctrines that are that kind of keep you on track. You know, those things in the course of seminary and reading the fathers, they're being undermined. Mm. You know, to and and they're being undermined in order to to lead me into um, a more sacramental way of thinking about myself and the world. Um, but nevertheless they're being undermined, which is really uncomfortable. Mm. And even language, I mean I was I was um, I was uh, really being confronted with more postmodern ways of thinking and speaking. Mm. Um, texts having more than one meaning was a huge problem, right? Mm-hmm. It was, it's huge mm. um, because most of my training was um, leading me to find, through grammar and syntax, the meaning of the authorial intent, the meaning that the author had. and. But then, you know, when you're confronted by more postmodern ways of thinking, that there could be more than one reading. Mm. It's wild. It feels mm-hmm. like you're losing, you know, your faith. Yeah. Yes. Can we really even know the meaning? Yeah. Does it, yeah. does it matter or is, it, is everything just nihilism in the end? Is there a meaninglessness? And we're all just playing with words and meanings. Um, and we're in, imposing our own meanings upon something that's nothingness, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, dancing upon the face of the void, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I, I felt very unsettled mm-hmm. in the midst of that. And and I turned to more um, uh, sort of narrative theology, and um, there's guys like Hans Frey and George Lindbeck who became mm-hmm. really important to me, um, at least in that transitionary time. Um, and then really it was the... Uh, it was a lot of more postmodern theologians that I, I found a lot of a lot of home with. Mm-hmm. Um, so people like in what's called the radical orthodoxy movement, um, John Milbank. Um, it really came down to um, language. Language. I, I think I think people Christians especially underestimate how how powerful the critiques of postmodernism are actually are toward toward modern ways of meaning-making and reading. Um, they're actually very powerful and, and, um, 
and there's not a lot of answers given back in response. They're kind of just treated as like, oh, well, that's silly. You know, Richard Gordy, kind of silly mm. uh, when he says something like, um, truth is whatever my friends, my peers will let me get away with saying. Mm. Like, that's kind of silly. But if you, uh, I began to say that if you, if you really um, think about how meaning and community works, interpretation works, um, that simply seems really true to me in a sense. So, so this is, our communities are communities of interpretation, um, which is why we maybe have different traditions. There's different ways of reading mm. the scriptures. And yet we all inhabit um, one true story, uh, one true infinite God who expresses himself in finite mm-hmm. um, creation, multivaried mm. ways. Um, so yeah, they, um, I'd say guys like John Milbank were really helpful. There's a book um, called Telling God's Story by Gerard Lauglin that was really helpful to me mm. um, because it sort of problematized the postmodern critique. Or at least the the nihilistic postmodern critique mm. that says everything that you're saying about truth is actually just your interpretation. It's your historical take on on what you know the conditions that have been given you. Um, Gerard Ra- Laughlin turns that back around and says, "Oh well, no, actually, nihilism is a story too. You're mm. giving me a story about reality, mm. um, and actually, we just have a different story." We hold to a Christian story, mm. where, where the fundamental things about reality is not that it's nothingness. Actually, it's quite the, quite the opposite. It's the fullness of God. God is the most true mm. being, the most true thing. He's not just a being among beings. He is truth. He is goodness. He is beauty. We live in Him as His creation. Um, he is because He is truth. He is able to create true things. Mm. He is able to communicate truthfully. Um, to his creation um, he is free he's not constrained by interpretation mm-hmm. he actually is he's glorified um, by it because it sort of unfolds his eternal nature throughout time mm-hmm. and so there's there's so many good things that I was in I sort of um, radical orthodox movement Jamie Smith was huge um, for that season um, Peter Lightheart was really big for me I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And apologies to the audience for the construction in the background. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thinking of, as, of nihilism as a story is really powerful too. It's hugely awesome. powerful because yeah. it seems overwhelming. Yeah. Because I feel like you can feel the tr- you can feel the truth of it almost. Mm-hmm. It's very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, our meaning so often doesn't come across to people. Mm-hmm. Are we really connecting? with what somebody else is saying? Or do they have their own meaning and they're projecting it upon me and I'm projecting it upon them and whoever wins out is the, the sort of the winner over the violence that is taking place between our different meanings. Mm-hmm. And it becomes nihilistic and violent all the way down. And you're like, whoa, wow, that's... I, I understand that to some extent, but um, the Christian story has a different beginning. Yeah than the nihilistic story. Mm. Um, so that became really important to me. Mm. 
Cool. Right on. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. This has been a delightful conversation Thank and you guys. Um, really enlightening. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug? Do you do stuff on social media for people to... I try not to do social media nice. uh, as much as I can. Um, it's almost like a necessary evil. Um, I What would I plug? Become Anglican. Yeah, please. <laughs> we have, yeah. Um, there are... I guess the people who have impacted me the most would be um, Theopolis Institute. In Birmingham, Alabama, Peter Lightheart. Uh, I highly recommend his um, book um, uh, called *The Theopolitan Fundamentals*. It's called uh, *On Heaven as an Earth*. Is, mm-hmm. the, is the new sort of bounding of it. Mm-hmm. If you want an introduction to liturgy um, and to how to think about liturgy in the world and God's creation from a very biblical foundation, that's one excellent place to go. Cool. Right on. Love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you guys know where to find us on social media, and we'll see you next week.